This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. It looks like our nearly record drought is continuing into the fall, and we are likely going to have some issues in some areas with planting wheat. The long-range forecasts are showing a probable dry October. The forecast does have a little chance of rain, and hopefully by the time you hear this, that chance will have increased. But it will take a whole lot of rain to soak our soils at this point. Not only do we have dry topsoil, all the subsoil moisture is gone as well. This gives hopeful wheat and cover crop planters just a few possible options. Option 1 is to dust in the wheat. This is where farmers will plant the seeds in dry soils at normal planting depths and planting dates in the hope that eventually will rain to germinate. It isn't a good idea to plant the seeds shallow when dusting in, as it could lead to winter kill later on. Instead of cutting back on seeding rates when dusting in, the rates need to be increased to make up for the likely late germination. Fungicides become more important as well, because the seed will be exposed in the soil longer than normal. Dusting in has a few risks with it. One is if in parts of the field have just enough moisture to get a seed germination, or a very light rain germinates the field, but then dry conditions return. Once the coleopeptide gets above the soil surface, the seedling will need some moisture to survive. If we get a seed germinating rain, but then nothing afterwards, the seed could end up dying. Though still well below average, some areas have gotten at least some amount of rain, and might have some subsoil moisture. Option 2 is to plant the seed deeper than normal and into the moisture. The main risk of deeper planting is the coleopeptide might run out of energy before the soil surface, resulting in poor emergence across the field. This risk is going to be made much worse if a hard rain crusts the soil over before emergence. Some varieties deal better with deeper planting, and it would be logical to assume that bigger seeds will fare better. Deeper planted seedling rate should increase slightly as well to compensate for poor emergence and also less tillering later on. Generally, 3 inches is the maximum advisable planting depth, but less than 2 is ideal. Personally, I think option 3 might be the best in many locations. Just wait and see if it ever rains. Of course, if the rains return and stick around, it could keep the planter out of the field, but will take a lot more rain to saturate our soils now. The late planting will result in fewer tillers and fall growth, so like the other options, seeding rates need to be increased, up to a maximum of 50% more than usual. Planting all the way up to mid-November is not uncommon around here. Fortunately, we have a little more time in this part of Kansas and Missouri than in the rest of the state, so we can wait a little longer to see if the rains return. No matter what option is made, seed treatments are going to be more important and seeding rates might need to be increased. Enferophosphorus fertilizer is a good idea, just like late planted wheat, but caution when adding nitrogen or potassium as these are salts. Technically, we are just now in the optimum planting window dates of October 5th to October the 20th. The next couple of weeks are likely to be dry, but we will see how the second half of October turns out. If you have any questions about planting wheat or cover crops, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent from the Wildcat Extension District. Forages are the basis of our livestock enterprises. Moreover, the nutritional makeup of that forage should be the foundation of a balanced diet. Factors like forage variety, maturity, growing conditions, and even handling practices can affect forage quality prior to the time it is fed. 
As a result, predicting forage quality values from standard books is often grossly overestimating or underestimating the feed value. A better way to determine feeding value is to have a representative forage sample tested by a laboratory. The equipment required for collecting forage samples includes a forage probe, a mixing bucket, sample bags, and a writing utensil. The two most common types of hay probes are the Penn State or the Colorado. The Penn State probe will require a brace and bit or electric drill to use. The Colorado is a push type. Both probes collect a good sample and are superior to a grab sample. The extension offices across the Wildcat District have a probe that producers can borrow. Forage should be sampled as near to the time of feeding or selling the hay as possible. The most important step in obtaining a meaningful analysis is to collect a representative forage sample. Extreme variation may occur in hay quality even when harvested from the same field. As a result, a separate forage sample should be tested for each hay lot. A lot refers to a quantity of similar forage, usually less than 100 tons of hay. Each lot should have a similar forage type, soil type, cutting date, maturity, weed infestation, weather during growth, and even similar types of equipment used for harvesting. Each individual lot should be sampled and marked in a storage area where you know which is which. Strive to collect samples from about 10% of the forage plots. Collect two cores from the round side of each big round bale. Combine the cores in a bucket and mix them well. Large round bales should be sampled to the center using a long probe or one with an extension adapter. Angle the probe in an upward direction to reduce the potential for water entering the core holes. For small square bales, sample the end in a straight inward line. Place the sample to be tested in a plastic Ziploc bag and label it before bringing it to the extension office. Bags should be labeled with your name, the lot number, date harvested, and species of grass. During collection, strive to maintain stem to leaf ratio. When considering small squares, this ratio is most consistent from the ends. Keep in mind the geometry of a big round bale. In a six foot bale, the outer 18 inches of the bale contains 75% of the forage. When your hay forage results come back, we can go over it. I can help you tailor a plan for which hay lot goes to each class of your animals. The cost of the hay sample is money well spent in balancing your feed needs and will save you money in the end. For any more questions on sampling forages, give me a call at the Wildcat Extension District, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, natural resource and diversified ag agent, with her report. This is David Scrantz, one of the ag and natural resource agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District with your K-State Research and Extension report. When evaluating a pond and deciding if it should be cleaned out or a new pond should be constructed somewhere else, Keep in mind, normally the best pond site was taken by the initial pond. However, if a suitable site is available, it is usually less expensive to construct a new pond 
than it is to clean out sediment from an existing one. Thus, a new pond should be fully considered before deciding to clean one out. When pricing out the cost of a new pond, it is recommended to include fencing around the pond and providing a remote watering site for cattle into the cost of building a new pond. When cleaning out a pond, it is important to have a place to take the sludge from cleaning this pond. Often this sludge has the consistency of pancake batter. It just keeps sliding downhill. It may require a period of time to dewater and dry out before the material can be used. Placing the sediment on the back side of the pond dam is the best place to put it. This sediment could also be used to fill some low spots in driveways, small gullies, or ruts in the driveway and around the pasture. Putting it right next to or upslope of the pond is not a good spot, however, because it could wash right back into the pond. Pond sludge will not have any soil structure, so it will have very little strength. It is probably not a good ideal to use pond sludge under a supporting wall of a building, but it might have some value for amending a degraded soil. If a pond was leaking, Soda ash or rock salt can be used for sealing lagoons or ponds. These work by causing clay particles to swell and repel each other, thus destroying the soil structure. It is recommended that they be incorporated and compacted in 6-inch layers during the construction of the pond. It should be noted that adding these to an existing pond may not work. It will likely be necessary to drain the pond, clean out the sediment, and add the sealant and then compact the pond. Bentonite clay is a special type of clay that swells when water is added to it, so it can also be used to line a pond. However, using bentonite is an expensive option. When bentonite dries out, it will crack, and so it is not recommended for use in a pond where the water level fluctuates greatly. If bentonite is used, it should be added during the construction process and be mixed and compacted with the rest of the soil being used to construct the pond. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Ensrance with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. When trying to control damage on your garden plants, you don't always need to spray chemicals. Sometimes following integrated pest management principles will get you the results you want. IPM is a collection of different strategies that aims to reduce chemical impact on the environment by finding alternative ways to prevent pests from getting to your garden plants. Biological controls encourage populations of pests' natural enemies, which could be predators, parasites, or disease. Bt corn is one example of a biological control. The corn plant contains bacteria that kills 
any insects that ingest it. This will control pests while leaving beneficial insects that do not feed on the corn unharmed. Cultural controls include practices that reduce pest establishment, reproduction, dispersal, and survival. Exclusion, or keeping the pest from getting to your garden in the first place, is the most common method of cultural control. However, sometimes you need to analyze your own growing methods. For example, overwatering your garden can lead to more weeds and could also encourage fungal diseases. Selecting the right plants and varieties will help minimize pest impact, especially when it comes to disease resistance. Mechanical control kills a pest directly using tools, physically prevents a pest from getting to your garden, or makes the environment unsuitable for it. Note that IPM does not automatically exclude the use of chemicals just because they are chemicals, but rather views them as one of many tools in the toolbox. By combining chemical control with other control options, you can minimize potential harm to non-targets while still getting the pest control you want. There are five components of IPM programs that will determine if protecting your plants will be successful. The first is to properly identify the disease or insect. Some insects may look like they will be pests, but are instead beneficial. Misidentification of the problem can also cause your control strategies to be ineffective, which wastes money and time, and can have negative ecological impacts. The second step is to assess the number of pests and their damage. This also requires asking how much impact you can tolerate. Some people have pest-free yards, while others can tolerate weeds being present, but not bugs. Understanding the damage threshold pests have to reach before control is necessary will keep you from over-applying chemicals. The third step is to know the guidelines for when management is needed. This will depend on what plants you're trying to defend, as different plants can tolerate different levels of abuse. The Extension Office will have agents who are familiar with pests in our area and how they impact different plants. The fourth step is to use a combination of different strategies mentioned previously, which as a reminder can include chemical control. The last step after putting a pest control strategy into practice is to assess that strategy's effectiveness. That way, if you encounter the pest again in the future, you can use the same control methods or make adjustments to make your control plans even more effective. For more information, on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Horde Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.